Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... I've lobbied for a long time for legislation to prohibit interventions on intersex children before they're old enough to consent for themselves. In an Australian first, new legislation came into effect in the ACT this month that will protect intersex youth from irreversible medical procedures. Also... So we set out this ludicrous goal of getting Perth's two biggest arts festivals to disassociate themselves from WA's two biggest polluters. Two of Perth's biggest arts and culture festivals are preparing for what will be their first fossil-free festival season later this January. And later today... It relates to power. It relates to people who like to be able to broadcast and say whatever they want. And they've entered a new era where feedback is now available to them. And they don't like it. We take a deeper dive into the moral panic of cancel culture. What does it mean to get cancelled? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, last weekend saw the start of the Great Ocean Rescue Tour, initiated by multiple environmental groups to stop a proposed seismic blasting and gas exploration project in the Otway Basin off the west coast of Victoria. The month-long campaign is set to visit every town as they travel the length of the Great Ocean Road, encouraging collective community action. The Wires' Tony Pankalewick spoke with Mitch Pope, Ocean Grove local and advocate from Otway Coastal Environmental Action Network, or OCEAN, to learn more about the campaign. Most people don't know what seismic blasting is. Basically what it is, it's a method of finding oil and gas reserves below the seabed. And they have to do this by creating sound waves that basically penetrate below the seabed and then bounce back up to receivers. And the way they do this is a seismic ship will be towing air guns behind it on lines like kilometres behind the ship and these air guns release blasts every 10 seconds that are as loud as an atomic bomb going off underwater. So they're 250 decibels loud, which is crazy to create these sound waves, which need to penetrate 15 to 20 kilometres below the seabed. And the impacts are just devastating on our marine life. Whales rely on their hearing for their feeding, breeding, migration, and the saying goes that a deaf whale is a dead whale. And so these blasts can absolutely deafen whales because they're so powerful. The blasts can be heard up to 4,000 kilometres away in the water. There's a study that has been done that the blasts kill zooplankton within a 1.2 kilometre radius. They weren't able to study outside that area, but basically zooplankton forms the basis of all marine food webs, so they're very important in marine ecosystems. And by taking that away, taking away what whales feed on, zooplankton and krill, you're taking away a food source for such an important species. How long's the discourse been going on for, for this seismic blasting project to happen in Western Victoria. And I know you mentioned it's to get fossil fuels, but why are they picking Western Victoria's coastline? Like, why is it so appealing? I wouldn't say I'm new to the seismic space, but I've been in it for about six months. There's two proposals to seismic blast in a similar area. One of them is 5.5 million hectares in size, which is almost the size of Tasmania. And this proposal has been around for, I think, a few years now. It's been pushed back a little bit 
for this area? I don't really know, to be honest with you. There's not as much gas infrastructure, or I could be wrong, or any for that matter, in Western Victoria and in the Otway Basin. And so I guess that's maybe the next step, wanting to search for more gas. But I will say, we don't need new gas. Renewable energy is much cheaper now. So it just makes no sense to be pursuing these projects. Tell us more about the Great Ocean Rescue Tour. So our Great Ocean Rescue Tour has been organised by Ocean, which is the Otway Coastal Environment Action Network. And we've got the support of many other groups as well. But our Great Ocean Rescue Tour, it started on the 5th. And basically, number one is to inform and raise awareness of seismic blasting to coastal communities in Western Victoria. A lot of people don't know about it. And so when they find out about it, they're generally pretty horrified. But we're also aiming to bring the communities together through our rallies and a paddle out to put the pressure on our local MPs as well to start to raise their voice to the Resource Minister Madeline King and support our community in this issue. And so we've got over the tour, we've got seven film screenings of a film that's been created by Surfrider Australia, which is about this issue. It's great for educating people on seismic blasting. And then with those films, we've got three major rallies as well to put the pressure on our politicians and show our community opposition to seismic blasting. Just with those that aren't involved in the marches and all that, like how has the community response been so far? Because I know you just also mentioned those that find out are pretty horrified. Has it just been very widespread throughout the coastal towns about what's going on or is that something that you'd like the message to get out further on? Well, the Apollo Bay community and communities around Warrnambool and Port Ferry have been more aware of seismic blasting for a while. There's been multiple rallies and marches and protests over the last few years. However, we had our first protest in Ocean Grove on Saturday the 6th, which was a march through the main street and then a rally at the beach. We had 300 people, which was quite impressive because it was not a very aware an activated town on this issue yet and after these images were sent around we had lots of responses of people saying I wish I'd known it was on I would have been there so we definitely achieved our goal with our first rally raising that awareness and being able to rally the community together so it was an incredible outcome. Going forward I know you want to educate the community just about the effects of the seismic blasting as we speak what are the current plans with these projects where are they at? So TGS and Schlumberger submitted their environment plan in August last year and so throughout August we had a 30-day public comment period for the public to make a submission in regards to their thoughts on this project. We had an incredible response which was 30,000 submissions to the independent regulatory body NOPSEMA and we were expecting a response back from NOPSEMA to either approve or reject it and for the project if it was proved to go ahead in early October. We still haven't heard a response so at the moment it's a bit of a waiting game where it's the perfect time during summer to start raising our voices about this and show that we don't want them to approve it. So we're just going to try and keep building the momentum before the decision has been made. And the other seismic blasting project that's been proposed by CGG, their environment plan will be dropped in the next few weeks. And so their environment plan will go up for public comment very soon. So that's going to be one that we're going to be keeping an eye on as well. That was ocean campaigner and advocate Mitch Pope ending that report. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. In March of last year, the ACT passed a bill that would ban irreversible medical procedures for young intersex people. The laws came into effect at the beginning of this year, being the first of their kind in any jurisdiction in Australia. 
The bill will stop deferrable treatments on intersex people's sex characteristics until they're old enough to make the decision for themselves. Advocates welcome the landmark decision and hope for more states to follow suit with similar legislation in the near future. The wise contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, has the story. New legislation restricting the imposed medical treatment of intersex people in the ACT will come into effect from 2024. Dr Aileen Kennedy is an expert in health law and the chair of Intersex Human Rights Australia. She was also one of the campaigners for this reform. Uh, I've lobbied for a long time for legislation to prohibit interventions on intersex children before they're old enough to consent for themselves. And that legislation has actually passed now in the ACT. They just, uh, earlier this year, they passed legislation which will come into effect next year that says that children with intersex variations, they shouldn't do any medically unnecessary surgeries or hormonal interventions until they're old enough to decide for themselves. So that might be before the age of 18, but um, it won't be as they do it now at the age of 18 months or five years. A lot of these surgeries are performed on children. 1.7% of the population has some form of intersex trait, meaning their sex characteristics don't align with the stereotypical norms of male or female. But Dr Kennedy says that intersex as a condition is not very well understood by most people. Intersex is purely a biological thing. So intersex is the term that's used sometimes. The term is innate variations of sex characteristics. Medically, these are termed disorders of sex or differences of sex development. And so those people will also access those procedures, but it will usually be done on the basis of parental consent. In other words, before they're old enough to make a decision for themselves, these um, surgeries and these different hormonal interventions will happen without that person's personal consent. Intersex people will often at a young age undergo gender assignment surgeries similar to those undertaken by transgender individuals to align intersex bodies with the stereotypical norms of male or female. The problem for people who are intersex is that their their bodies aren't sort of stereotypically male or female and therefore the medical community or some sections of the medical community uh, jump in early um, as when they're still children or infants even and change their bodies to make them look more stereotypically male or female. Under international human rights law, medical intervention may only take place without an individual's consent in a medical emergency or when medically necessary. A 2021 report issued by the Australian Human Rights Council called for new legislative protections, guidance and oversight processes when there is consideration of medical interventions for intersex people under the age of 18. The proposed guidance would ensure that medical interventions are proposed only when necessary, that consent in all cases is fully informed and that children and younger people are empowered to participate in the decision-making process in a way that they understand. Dr Kennedy says that people must be able to make these decisions for themselves. So I, I guess the, the thread that runs under all this should be 
autonomy. People should decide for themselves how they feel and what, what sort of how they want their bodies to express that, that inner, inner sense of themselves. That was Chair of Intersex Human Rights Australia, Dr Eileen Kennedy, speaking with Tune FM's Ash Taylor. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. This month, two of Perth's biggest arts and culture festivals are preparing for what will be their first fossil-free festival season, with both Fringe World and Perth Festival having ended their partnerships with fossil fuel giants Woodside and Chevron. The decision comes after a five-year campaign led by climate activists and WA-based artists. The Wire's Nikki Page spoke with Anthony Collins from Fossil Free Arts Western Australia about how they did it. Nearly five years ago, there was a group of us. We're a bit of a ragtag kind of bunch of like activists uh, and artists who kind of got together. We all got in a room. We weren't happy with with Woodside being plastered all over, you know, everything in Perth. <laughs> So we set out this ludicrous goal of getting Perth's two biggest arts festivals to disassociate themselves from WA's two biggest polluters, which are Chevron and Woodside. I don't know. I don't know how many of us genuinely thought that we were actually going to find success, but here we are five years later and we've achieved that goal. So last year, Perth Festival ended its partnership with Chevron. And now this year, we're looking at Fringe World, which I gather is the third largest fringe festival in the world. But the naming rights deal with Woodside has ended. The first signs of victory came a couple of years ago when the naming rights deal was dropped. Tell us a bit about the process of actually breaking that link between... Woodside and Artrage, who manage Fringe World? It's been a long process and has tested us all. We were obviously asking for a full cut with uh, between Fringe and Woodside uh, originally, and it was 2021. Yeah, there were so many actions and events and petitions, and so when a contract renewal came up after the festival had finished that year, when... Well, actually, they didn't announce it, but we, we, we worked out through a, a leaked document that actually not just Woodside, but no other company would ever have naming right of Fringe World Festival in Perth, which is the Woodside Pleasure Garden. And then just a matter of weeks later, it became apparent that they just transferred that funding. So some of us were satisfied, others of us, particularly the artists who, who still wanted to be a part of working for Outrage and working for Fringe, still wanted that breakaway, complete breakaway. So we kept at it. It wasn't as public after that point, and it was mostly engagement with the Outrage board. We had a strong presence at their AGMs um, every year after that. 
And to to be fair to Outrage, they pretty much made the decision after they dropped the naming rights sponsors that they were going to transition away from Woodside funding and that they were using this funding just as a method of helping them get more philanthropic funding. They stuck to their word. They used it as a transition, which is a, is a strong way to do it. And when they told us that we didn't do any other public actions against the relationship, we kept an eye on it. They actually disassociated completely with Woodside in September, and quite recently that actually happened. And that's that's why it's all in the news um, right now. Anthony, how does that compare with achieving the ending of Perth Festival partnership with Chevron? You've now got these two major events, major employers of artists, performers in WA. Neither of them uh, have naming rights from fossil fuel companies anymore. What happened with the Perth Festival? So really, really close together. And the two festivals have got a really good relationship with each other. So when we started the campaign, we knew that we had like 18 months until Fringe Festival was due to renew its contract with Woodside. And we knew that maybe another 18 months after that was when Perth Festival had to uh, negotiate their next deal with Chevron. And so we knew that we kind of had time, but we were also very careful with our messaging with Fringe Festival to say Perth Festival is next. Like, we're not finished yet. We do actions at Perth Festival. We were most of the time, we were burnt out by the time Perth Festival came out. A lot of it, it was the threat of what we had done with Fringe Festival that scared Perth Festival. And I know this having spoken to one of the directors after they got rid of Chevron. So it was just like a side effect of what we were doing to, to Fringe Festival along with the kind of careful language we used aimed at both festivals. Fossil-free arts campaigner Anthony Collins there, speaking with The Wire's Nikki Page. The Wire, independent news and current affairs for the last 15 years and still going strong. The phrase cancel culture has become so common in our everyday vocabulary, it's hard to believe it's a relatively new concept. The term getting cancelled refers to the act of someone being penalised for expressing views or committing actions deemed to be outside of what's socially acceptable. This might include social ostracism and reputational damage, loss of employment and even legal ramifications. But how legitimate is the looming threat of cancel culture? When it comes to big names and celebrities, many experts tend to believe otherwise. Nick hanlon Raggio reports. The term has gained popularity mainly among supporters of some of the current most controversial figures, including former US President Donald Trump and children's author J.K. Rowling. I sat down with Dr. Victoria Fielding, a lecturer specialising in strategic communications at the University of Adelaide, to discuss the social phenomenon of cancel culture and why the concept may not even really exist in the first place. What are some of your ideas surrounding the concept of cancel culture as a whole? I've seen cancel culture emerge as a bit of a moral panic. People seem to think that they're not safe to share opinions online without being the victims of being cancelled 
by these sort of enraged online mobs that supposedly are meant to be able to remove them from their powerful platform. So it's clear that it relates to power. It relates to people who like to be able to broadcast and say whatever they want. And they've entered a new era where feedback is now available to them. And they don't like it. They don't like hearing what the audience thinks of what they've said. But I actually don't think this idea that they lose their platform is actually happening in practice. So it's a moral panic based on this threat, this insidious threat of the sort of democratic audience taking them down. Do you believe that the idea of getting cancelled has become a tool for people to preemptively undermine any criticism that they may face for expressing unpopular views? I think one of the most interesting things about cancel culture is that it is used to make people the victim when they've said something usually really disgusting. So the thing is, you're not going to likely get a huge amount of pushback for something you've said, whether you say it on social media or in the mainstream media or whatever it is. You're not going to get outrage and controversy unless you've said something pretty bad. Society has always had standards and we've always had the idea that we have freedom of speech, but that there is always a line and there's a place in which people will say that's enough. So it reminds me a little bit when people say no offence, but, and when they say no offence, but you always think, hmm, I think you know that you're about to offend me, but you're trying to get away with it. And so when people say they've been cancelled, it's often to move what they've done out of the villain frame to put themselves in the victim frame and to say, I'm the victim here. I was just using my free speech, but I always remind people with free speech comes responsibility. Have you observed any notable differences between cancel culture in Australia and that of the cases overseas? I'd say because Australia is a bit of a small fish in the media landscape, it's much harder to think of a really big example of someone being cancelled in Australia. I mean, some of the people who claim they've been cancelled, let's have a think about that. It's people like J.K. Rowling, multi-billionaire famous author of Harry Potter, for some unknown reason, just came out as anti-trans, like really unnecessarily horrible. Calls herself a turf. I don't really like the phrase turf because it, it implies that there's something feminist about being anti-trans when really it's just bigotry at its most basic form. And she will often just say really horrendous things. It's met with huge pushback and other people will say, oh, they're trying to cancel JK Rowling. If you decide you don't want to watch Harry Potter or read the books anymore because you don't like the author... That's her fault. That's not some fault of some culture, cancel culture of saying, I no longer want, like, you're no longer allowed to say what you like. She's absolutely allowed to say what she's like. And we're allowed to decide if we don't want to consume her products anymore. A lot of the people who claim to be cancelled will actually just be fired from their jobs. And they're fired for the old fashioned reason that they've hurt the reputation of the organisation they work for. That consequence has always happened. Has getting cancelled possibly done more to boost the popularity of its so-called victims rather than ostracise them? I definitely think that people who are involved in um, saying they've been cancelled are looking to generate public support for themselves. So, you know, using J.K. Rowling as an example, I'm sure there's a huge number of like-minded anti-trans people who now see her as a hero. Yes, she's also done damage to her reputation. I'm not quite sure why, like, why she can't see that that's not a great idea for her, but like her publicity. But she is constantly defended by a really large group of people who sort of come from that that echo chamber around anti-trans, right-wing, pro-Trump, you know, that sort of extremist, lot, often very racist as well, that um, rhetoric. So I don't know whether I can think of anyone that off the top of my head who has actually used being 
disgraceful to improve their career. But in saying that, I think particularly in the mainstream media, you have organisations like there's a group called GB News in the UK and they exist to fight any sort of idea that you should be restricted with your freedom of speech. Anyone who tries to regulate them, they say they're being censored. So they really like to push the boundaries of what's acceptable. But in doing so, they've actually had a case recently where two of their presenters, one was fired and I think one's been suspended for this disgusting rant one of them had about a female journalist saying that she wasn't attractive enough to have sex with and therefore her opinions weren't valid. And they got huge pushback. They got a huge amount of complaints. They've got a um, regulatory sort of inquiry about it. And so they've actually made their own decision. That was Dr Victoria Fielding, Senior Lecturer in Strategic Communications at the University of Adelaide. Ending that report by The Wire's Nick Hanlon-Raggio. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbul and Jagara countries on which this program has been produced and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire. Music.